This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Now we look to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Follow along if you would in your copy of God's Word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In the, one, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Back in 1976, the year of our nation's bicentennial, I remember it well, for my mother dressed me up in red, white, and blue and put me in a parade with my poodle. We, we talk about that about every year. She, she reminisces about how wonderful that was. Uh, I didn't win. I should have won. It was a, it was a contest, but the, we, the, the girl that won cheated. So, um, <laughs> so we're walking through the parade. But back in 76, a lot was going on in our nation. It was at the height of the Cold War in the nation. Uh, we, we had things happening in the country that, that uh, were, were difficult and challenging in so many ways. The word malaise entered into our, our, our lexicon as a description of the culture. Uh, a hopelessness was kind of overwhelming. Gas prices and gas lines were, were developing, and people were having fights and arguments as they were waiting to spend 30 cents on a gallon of gas or more or less. I mean, can you even imagine that right now? It was a different day. But about a month, or actually not even a full month prior to our celebration of our bicentennial, something happened on the other side of the planet that actually impacted us and impacted uh, the nations even to today. A group of Palestinian uh, terrorists hijacked an Air France airliner and diverted it, along with its 90-plus passengers, to what they believed would be a safe haven in the nation of Uganda. Yet while there, on the ground, with their demands being shared through the news media, an Israeli team of specialized forces led by a commando named Yoni Netanyahu went in and were developed and put together And they went into the nation of Uganda and were able to rescue 110 of the 113 total people there. It was declared an amazing day of victory. I won't go through all the history of it. For some of you really enjoy that kind of history. Others of you want to, let's just get to the point. So I just want you to know that that story continues to be told in Israel. It continues to be told in biographies and others, other accounts of, of handling terrorist attacks and hijackings and all of that that was involved in that world. They, these stories over time become legend, and the individuals involved become legendary. But in this case, when they're true, they create historic heroes that are told of generation to generation. 
The writer of the letter, known as the letter to the Hebrews, references a heroic moment in the nation of Israel's past that the people of God would know, not, not like the, the one from 1976, that's told today, but this was a historic story of a rescue operation, a military insurgents, and a kidnapping that was uh, where, where the ki- kidnappers were attacked, and the ones they had kidnapped were rescued out of, out of their, their bondage. And, of one of the, and, and it takes place, it actually goes back to the book of Genesis in chapter 14. One of the most renowned heroes of our faith, that man named Abraham, or Abram, as his name was prior to God changing it, had in this story just led an incredible rescue operation against a conglomerate of city-states. Sounds like a great movie, doesn't it? These city-states and their kings and their leaders had come together with their respective armies, and they had kidnapped Lot and the family of Lot, as well as others. Now, kidnapping people, that's bad enough. But kidnapping Lot, when Abraham is the uncle of Lot, moves it to a different level in Abraham's story. It's one thing to watch the news and see something that takes place on the other side of the planet. It's another thing to watch the news and have the individual mentioned be somebody related to you or that you know dearly. And all of a sudden, it changes how you view things. Lot and his family were not exactly walking with the Lord in where they were at this point. They were living in the city of Sodom. Many of you understand the terms Sodom and Gomorrah as the two evil cities of the Old Testament era and all that that entailed and all that that uh, represented. But that's where they had been kidnapped from. And Lot and his family were taken, taken, you know, so you kind of like want Liam Neeson coming in here to figure out how to get them out of there. But they didn't need Liam Neeson, they had Abraham. Good old Abraham, old man Abraham. Too old to have a kid, but not too old to get angry. Not too old to do something. Look at Genesis chapter 14, going to the Old Testament. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house. These are his servants and his servants' children and the workers that he had. It says there were 318 of them. That's a big household. That's an army. He takes his own personal militia, his own mercenary force, his army of 318, and he went in pursuit as far as the region of Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, them being the bad guys, in case you want to know who we're talking about. He defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. That is just a, two verses, three verses. What a story. I mean, that's an epic film right there. That's a rescue operation. That's an attack on an individual group, a kidnapping by a, an oligarchy of multiple city-states and leaders and armies. And Abram said, I'm not just going to sit here and do nothing. And God called him to be a leader. This leader became a legend. He was God's man at God's time, and he was awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise that we talked about last week. And at this point in his journey, his flesh and blood, his family was in trouble. It was about family members. It wasn't that he approved of everything Lot and his wife and Lot's kids were doing. I mean, we're not going to raise hands, but we could. If you have anybody related to you that you do not approve of everything they do, you might know what I'm talking about. But blood apparently is thicker than water, and these were his family members. 
And so Abram and his family, or his servants there, they stopped everything they do to do what must be done, and that which God led them to do, he led his servants and those in his household in to quote Buford T. Justice in hot pursuit. Some of you get that. Smoking the Bandit was on TV yesterday, so I can't help it. I grew up in an era where Smokey and the Bandit, I thought it was a documentary of growing up in the South. So anyway, just so you know. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you're blessed. So this story that, that the Hebrew writer references is the story of legend that everybody that's reading the letter knows. They don't have to be told again. They don't have to do what we have to do often is say, now let's look back to Genesis. Let me tell you what was going on because they knew the story. They had been told the story. They had it in their head, in their mind, in their heart. They had grown up hearing this over and over and over. But it is important to know the backstory, this backstory of rescue. In this story, Abram is larger than life. He's like the hero. He's the warrior. He's the valiant fighter, a leader of men. But he's a family man. Even though he and his wife do not have children of their own, he is the family man. He's an uncle. He's the good uncle. He's got servants and others in his household. And it is his love for God and for his family that motivates him to do something. All this puts Abram, or Abraham, on top of the heap here. He is on the mountaintop, historically and religiously, as you look back and say, here's, a, here's, a, here's one to look up to. And so in the New Testament era, as the Christian, Jewish Christians, the Hebrews who are trying to follow Christ and are questioning much, this persecuted group, this frustrated group, this questioning group, this fearful group of Christians who are not experiencing the freedom to worship freely as they choose, these with Jewish heritage are called to remember him well at this point. Abraham died thousands of years before the readers of the letter ever received the letter, but yet they knew the story and they knew how important he was. And once more, they have their historic heritage and lifelong heroic legends and tales, not tales like fairy tales, but tales of stories and true stories nonetheless, connected to the present and the eternal reality of the person of Jesus Christ made center for them. And thus we end up with this weird discussion about a king who lived thousands of years ago named Melchizedek that is only spoken of maybe twice in the entire Bible, three times at the most. It seems the author continues to reference Melchizedek here and in next week's sermon we'll talk about him again. And next week we'll get into a little more detail about who he is. But I want to make sure that we get what we need to get here. Because we need to make sure we don't read this as simply the History Channel documentary on an ancient rescue operation from a long dead Jewish guy in an ancient community. But this is relevant to us today. For us who are Gentile believers, who didn't grow up in Jewish culture, who didn't have this story cemented in our mind, who did not go to Sabbath school growing up memorizing the Old Testament, it is relevant to us today. And for Gentile Christians who are in the room and those of us listening today, a priesthood such as this by Melchizedek is referenced here. It can become either confusing or ignored, at worst misunderstood, and become a stereotype. Now we've looked at the biblical model of priesthood often in this series. Once more, we step into this. And we do so to strip away any preconceived ideas of what we think a priest is. See, this is where it gets really challenging. Because we live in the culture where, it, it, when, you, when I say the word priest, many of you are thinking black suit, black shirt, black, black jacket, white collar. 
because that's all you've seen. That's what you see in every movie and television show when there is a depiction of anybody who's a pastor or a minister. But we have to jump over a misconstrued ideology of priesthood that sadly has overtaken many of us in our mindset of historic Christendom and get exactly what is being said here. So we look at two broad strokes related to Melchizedek in relation to this. Two points, first, he is the king who is priest. Secondly, he is the priest who is king. So let's look at the king who is priest. Melchizedek was a king. He's hardly mentioned at all in the Bible, I said that, but he is mentioned, so that means he's important. And where he is mentioned, it is clear that he is a king, for he is called a king. Now, erase your imagery of Disney royalty and modern day kings and queens and European castles, but the ancient city-states of this ancient world and Melchizedek who led one of them. Following Abram's amazing rescue and military victory over his allied evil cities or these allied evil cities and their evil kings, we are then introduced to the king known as Melchizedek. Back in Genesis 14, immediately in verse 17, we've just had the story of the rescue, now we're in verse 17, and it says this. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, there's the city of Sodom once more showing up in the story, went out to meet him. That's Abraham it's speaking of. Went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, parentheses, for he was a priest of, the God, of God most high. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram then gave him a tenth of everything. That's a tithe, if you want to look at that, even before the temple is instituted. And much more a tithe than what has been taught in modern day evangelicalism. That's a different sermon for a different day. But let's look at Melchizedek. He's the king of a place. What's the city he's the king of? Salem. Now, Salem is a city that many of us are going, where is Salem? Salem is, a, is an ancient word, and since words matter, and biblical names matter more so than even today, the name Melchizedek, let's go to that. Melchizedek actually transliterates to mean the king of righteousness. The name city, or the name Salem, means city of peace. City of peace. That might bring some things to mind right now, because if you have Jewish friends, if you've ever been to Israel, you are greeted when you enter the country with shalom, which means peace, shalom, Salem, same word. Also the same word at the end of the city in the center of Israel. Jeru, Salem, Jerusalem, the same city, the same place, the king of Salem. That's Melchizedek. That's who he is and that's where he is. And here we have him introduced to us and not a lot talked about him here, just a bit of a narrative. And then we see him mentioned by David in the Psalms. But even in the Psalms, it references this. So this is it. This man was unique in his position, his title, his name. They all point to another who would come. A king of righteousness, a king of peace. Does this sound familiar to messianic understanding? He is the king who is the priest. And as you may know, I don't know if you get this, but in the Old Testament, kings aren't priests and priests aren't kings. Right? So you end up with these, these twofold kind of conversations. You have the priest and you have the kings. You have the, you have the tribe of Levi, which is a specific tribe. The Levitical priesthood comes out of that. That is all instituted there in the, in the Old Testament following the Exodus account in, in Exodus, the book of Exodus. 
And all that was set and declared in place a thousand years, that Levitical priesthood, after this took place. So here you have a priest before the introduction of the priests. And yet he's called a priest of, the God, of God Most High. He is a king who is a priest. Now we just read over that too quickly and go, yeah, no, I got it, king who is a priest. A priest. No, it's such a big deal because it never happens. Kings aren't priests and priests aren't kings, except for this one and another one we come to in the New Testament era that you might know personally. The king of Salem meets the conquering hero, Abram, and brings him bread and wine. Random, right? Bread and wine. Don't they have anything else to eat in the Bible? Bread and wine. Not random. Bread and wine. Even if Melchizedek at the time, perhaps, if he was not a a pre-incarnate version of Christ, he had no idea what it would ultimately represent, but God knows, knows and knew what it would ultimately represent, and therefore you have bread and wine in the Old Testament before even the Passover is instituted, and ultimately before the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we partake of today. The great king who is priest is king of the city of peace, and he comes before God's man and offers this man a gift of fellowship and righteousness. This is important. For this king who is a priest is the foreshadow of Christ. He's a placeholder. He is the king of peace and he gives a gift to the man. This should just kind of shake us here if we kind of just sit on this for a moment. The one who is the king gives a gift to just an everyday guy. He's the king of peace who is a priest and he gives a gift to the man. A gift that would one day represent a gift offered thousands of years later, a gift of blood and a gift of the body, the bread and the wine. Foreshadowing at its best. The character of Jesus Christ, who is more than a character, but is the creator of all as God the Son. But the person of Christ is foreshadowed here by this man who was king of peace and known as a king of kings. Now let's look at this. Not only was the king, I mean the king who is a priest, he is the priest who is king. I know I just flipped it, but think about this. Not only was he the king of Salem, but he was also a priest. So significant, for this is no caricature of priesthood shown here. This is a declaration Once more to those whose personal and national history was cemented in the truth of the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. So even the Hebrew Christians in the New Testament who understood Melchizedek was called a priest had grown up in a system where the Levitical priesthood reigned reigned true and that's what they knew of. They understood that kings are not priests and that they also knew as Christians that Jesus is called king. They understood that priests are not kings and yet they also knew that Jesus is called our high priest. Jesus is a king or is the king, but he is king of a kingdom, not of this world. He is a king of an eternal realm, and when all that is here is turned to dust, he is, because he is, I am. The king who reigns is king over all. He is sovereign and holy and just and right. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and when questions come to the validity of his crown, the writer points to the Old Testament foreshadower of Melchizedek. When the Hebrew Christians are struggling, is Jesus really the one that he told us he is? We've sold everything, we've given up everything, we've entered into this religious world here, now we're questioning because the persecution is growing, and the writer of this book to the Hebrews says, don't forget, he is who he says he is, for he is the great I am, and he is foreshadowed by Melchizedek. You didn't question him as the priest, he came first to set us up. The readers would read this and recognize that the story of Jesus was not a story made up on the fly or put together after the fact, but a part of a great epic where every single piece fits together like a perfect puzzle, bringing glory to the creator and author of all, Jesus, a king in the order of Melchizedek, a king of peace, a peace, Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was also not born of a priestly tribe. You know that. He was born of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah, and while we know the prophecies declared this was to be, the first century Jews had to come to grips with the reality that this priest, high priest who Jesus is, was not a Levitical priest. In their mind, a little bit unorthodox, but they had to understand where it came from. In order to help them understand, the author of Hebrews goes back to the Levitical priesthood from Aaron's lineage being instituted and shows how Jesus is a priest, an intercessor between the father and his children, his people, and his nation, just as Melchizedek was. The Old Testament character Melchizedek, who is only present for a moment, is listed without a genealogy. Now listen, this is where it gets kind of hairy, right? It doesn't mean he wasn't human though there's questions and people will debate that, but it doesn't mean he wasn't human. I think he was. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a mother and a father. I think he did. But what is very intentional in the Old Testament writing is there is in a nation of people who knew their dad, their granddad, their great-granddad, all the way back to Adam, there was no genealogy listed for Melchizedek. He just shows up and he disappears. There is no listing of his genealogy. If you ancestor.com'd him, it would just come up with his name and nothing before it. There's no story about his death. That doesn't mean he didn't die, it just didn't mention it. And it's intentional that it did not mention it because the connection of the former and the, the illustration of Jesus was being made even then. Jesus, who has always existed eternal, eternity past and always will that's Christ, eternal. The king who is priest, the priest who is king, he is the image of Christ to come, and he came to bring righteousness and peace upon God's man, Abram. The Genesis account says that Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. There's no temple to offer a tithe to in there yet. And so that's interesting. There's no tithe requirement as instituted in the Old Testament for the Old Covenant followers of God. Yet here it is, a tenth, a gift, a tithe to a man, a king, a priest. Why? Well, here's the point. And it's not a call to get you to tithe to the local church. That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge leap and a total miss of what's being stated here. Because we live in the New Covenant era. This is a picture of superiority. That's what you're seeing in the Melchizedek Abram story. You see, tithes and offerings like this, are not given to those who are, who are subservient, but are given to those who are superior. So he's the king, I will give you a tithe. It is not a charity, it is an honor to be able to give. Abram, the great man of God, has just done this heavy work by rescuing Lot. He is celebrating the rescue. He has won. They have gone into the enemy territory, and they have brought back that which was taken. 
Abram has received the promise from God, the national promise, the victor of the battle. The hero then shows up in front of the king of Salem. Definitely notice this. He didn't give the offering to the king of Sodom. That's a reason for that we'll get into today. But for the king of peace, he does this. He gives an offering, a tithe, to the one who's known as a priest of the most high God. The subservient, Abram, gives the offering to the superior, the priest. Thus we must conclude that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior in every way to the Levitical priesthood which would come. And thus only the only priesthood, only one priesthood is higher even than that. And that is why Jesus Christ is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But here it comes. I know this is, the, I, I can see you're on the edge of your seat as you are trying to stay awake. Hang in here with me. Because this is the question that must be asked as you're hearing about Melchizedek and Old Testament and priesthoods and offerings and all that exciting stuff. The question in your mind is, why do I care? I mean, why do I care about this? Why should you care? What's the big deal? We're not even Jewish, at least most of us. Most of us don't even have a Jewish heritage. Some of you do, but not all of us. Majority of us do not. We live in the age of technology. We live in the age of instant gratification, modernity, and evolved thinking, not to mention factory-like religion in the shadow of the church growth movement that sells doctrine in bite-sized pieces designed to help us have four steps to a better marriage, better kids, and better finance, and more. That's what Christianity's become in the West. It's just been a a four-step process to be in a better you. In other words, you can do church in America without Jesus. So what's the big deal? Perhaps that's the answer. Perhaps in the age of Christianity and easy discipleship, the hard questions of doctrine, theology, and deeper thinking provide more meat than milk. And if you just can't handle it, it might be that you're eating too many milkshakes and not enough steak, theologically. And when we pause to think about who we are, because it's always about identity, right? And we pause to think about whose we are, the need for a priest, an intercessor, one who goes before us, one who speaks for us, pleads for us, and even ultimately dies for us so that we may be rescued, becomes even more clear. And all of a sudden, the frivolity of inch-deep Christianity is washed away. And the overwhelming reality of the grace of God moves us to a point where we can barely move. Oh, to be overwhelmed by the grace of God. We have a priest who really is the ultimate priest. We have a priest who really is the king. We have a king who truly is our priest. We have a God who does not belong to us, but whom we would bow before, offering gifts, not out of a legalistic rule to give 10%, but out of being overwhelmingly moved by the power of a holy God who is, who is love, we bow and we give generously of everything that we have. And what do we get in return? A gift we don't deserve. Bread and wine. Body and blood. 
from the one who is the priest, from the one who is the king, from the hero of the story who is the author of the story, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, superior to all. See, the Hebrews in the first century needed a reminder. The Christians in the 21st century needed a reminder of who he is and who we are. For he is our king. He is our priest. And he is our savior. And the freedom we have to come together to acknowledge that It may not move us to stand up and cheer with a loud exclamation. It may move us to an overwhelming movement of sitting on our knees and humble adoration of recognizing that the good that God has given from our holy priest and our holy king is totally undeserved. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come together and we Observe this ordinance of your, of your last supper that was given as Passover meal with Christ and the disciples, instituted as the Lord's Supper for the local body of believers as members come together to acknowledge the reality of who you are. We pray that as we worship you through the Lord's Supper today, that it will be more than it has ever been in our individual lives, that it will be no, at no point just routine, let's get through it, Father, we acknowledge the ridiculousness of bad grape juice and poorly tasting crackers. We acknowledge the fact that there are 40% of the people in the room that will likely not even be able to open the package to get the food out. We laugh at that. It's just a, it's just a tool. But I'm so thankful that those little things we hand out to the individual church members today are nothing more than illustrations of that which has been given out for each and every one of us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King and our Priest. So help us to do our best in remembering well today. And for those that are not believers, that are not Christians, that are not members of this church who will not be partaking with us in this moment, Stir within them the curiosity that leads to the conversation so that they may know who you are. Holy Spirit, do what only you may do and what only you can do. We pray your blessings upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Mike.